are the church. Why are we spending the next few weeks looking at the church? Well, hasn't church been really strange for the last year? It's been a time when so much of what we would have taken for granted about what it means for us to be church, to be um, a people together, to have rhythms and routines of being church, so much of that has been stripped away. And now, as um, Hiam um, said about deeper, like there's a healing and a rebuilding to be done. It's our prayer that um, as we go through this series together, that we would understand and celebrate the beauty and the mission of the church in a deeper way than ever before. That we would be captivated by God's plan A, his mission to bring a people from every tribe and tongue to himself and set uh, ablaze again for us what our part to play in this story is. So we're going to look at some of the ways that God paints a picture of the church in the Bible. Um, He uses images. He uses the image of a body, of temple, of family. But first up today, the bride of Christ. Now the Bible is the story of a bridegroom choosing loving, and pursuing a bride. It is the story of a long and eventful engagement. If you've read to the end of the book, you'll know that the bridegroom's wedding doesn't come to the final chapter of the Bible. But starting at the beginning, and this really is the very, very beginning, God chose his bride before time even existed before a single person had taken a breath on earth, in the depths of eternity, God the Father had chosen a bride for the Son. Ephesians 1.4 says he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. God the Father chose the church as a bride. Out of the fullness of his love and glory, he chose that he would set his love on an unimpressive, undeserving people, a people to whom he would demonstrate the abundant richness of his grace and mercy. I can't get my head around this, but I think what this truth means is that Grace Church has existed, was chosen in the heart of God for all eternity past. That means there has never been a time that we were not on his mind. And before we had even gone astray, before we had even taken a breath, God had a plan to cross heaven and earth to bring his church to himself in a marriage that will never end. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because before we're introduced to the church, God's people are called Israel. And God describes himself as their husband. Now, he set his love on Israel. He chose to love them with fierce commitment and tender affection. Israel weren't a people that had any significance, any attractiveness, any impressiveness in and of themselves. So why did God choose them? God himself gives us a bit of an insight in Deuteronomy 7. He says, 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. That's the reason that, that he gives. He loved them because he loved them. I rack my brain trying to come up with like an analogy to compare this to, some, something we do that, to compare this to, but actually I think there is no human behavior that is like this. Everything we do, everything we choose to love is because we see some beauty or attractive, attractiveness in that thing. But God chose his people simply because he loved them. He chose that they would move his heart, that his heart would be stirred even by the sound of their voice. And he makes solemn vows to Israel. He says that he's going to provide for them, that he will provide and protect a home, a place, a land for them. He gives them laws and boundaries to protect the relationship. He promises that he will bless them abundantly with good things and that he will give to them the very best thing, which is himself. In short, he will be the perfect husband. But tragically, this is not yet a happily ever after story because Israel is not a faithful wife to the husband who loves her. The people Israel respond to the loving kindness of their God by turning to lesser loves. You might know the story of the, the golden calf um, in Exodus. God um, makes this covenant with, with his people, this binding relationship. Um, and the people and God make solemn vows to each other. And actually, it's a lot like a marriage. God says, I do. The people say, I do. They commit to one another. And then there's a ceremony described in Exodus that comes next that is deliberately written to be like a wedding ceremony. Moses takes part in this ceremony. He's up on this mountain representing the people. And he's kind of at, at this wedding ceremony, sealing the covenant. The rest of the people are down on the foot of the mountain. And even then, they decide to make a golden calf statue to bow down before and worship. Please uh, forgive me for using such an unpleasant analogy, but this is like the bride having an affair with the best man on the actual wedding day. Israel's idolatry went far deeper than just breaking the rules. This is brazen unfaithfulness. In fact, adultery is the way that God describes Israel's idolatry. In Ezekiel, he says, you adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. In Jeremiah, he says, you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. The Old Testament throughout the histories, the wisdom, literature, in the prophets, it describes adulterous relationships between Israel and other gods time and time and time again. And this is for God about so much more than outward behavior. Those, those verses in the prophets in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they're the words of a husband 
describing a marriage gone tragically bad. But this was never going to be about the ability of the people to stay faithful. This was always going to be about the faithfulness of God. He had chosen to be his, he had chosen them to be his treasured possession. And now he was going to pursue them. He was going to draw them back to himself with cords of kindness and with ropes of love. And um, to illustrate this, I want to introduce to you a man called Hosea. Now, Hosea was a prophet, and being a prophet meant that God gave messages to the people through you. These were often warnings. They were quite hard-hitting messages. Hosea, I think, had one of the tougher jobs as a prophet. How? Well, um, God is going to use Hosea's own marriage to paint a devastating picture for his people. So Jonah lived in a fish for three days. Ezekiel made uh, bread cooked on human excrement. Um, you can tell me who you think drew the shortest straw out of these guys and Hosea. God says to Hosea, I want you to go and marry an unfaithful woman. Now, that wouldn't be normally good life advice, but uh, what's going on here is God is saying, this is how Israel have been towards me. And your life is going to paint a vivid picture for the people of what they have done. So Hosea does this. He marries this woman, Goma, her name is, and he has children with her. And then she goes back to her old life, to other men. And God says to Hosea, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Someone said to me recently, um, I wonder how Hosea would have felt going through all of this only to then be called a minor prophet. <laughs> anyway, he, he goes and uh, redeems her. He brings her back home to be loved by him again, to be called his once again. And God says, this is a picture of how he will be with his unfaithful bride. He says this in Hosea 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she will answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time where she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my Baal. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now Hosea, more than most, knew the lengths that God would go for his bride. 
But even he, even Hosea, could not have dreamed of where God's pursuit of his bride would take him. Because into the story steps Jesus Christ. God himself come for the people who he has loved for all eternity. See, Jesus didn't come first and foremost to just be a good teacher who shows us how to live. He came as a bridegroom to pursue and win his bride. And just as God didn't love Israel because they were impressive, Christ didn't love us because we were impressive or beautiful. In fact, he knew we would be in active rejection of him, not just unfaithful, but faithless, wandering in a desert of sin. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died the death that should have belonged to the unfaithful bride, and he took her unfaithfulness upon himself. He died in our place. He bore the shame of the cross, the nakedness, and the reviling that should have been ours. He suffered the punishment of each idolatrous glance of our hearts towards lesser loves. He suffered alone outside of the city so that we could be invited in to the wedding feast. He drank the bitter cup of the wrath of God so that we could drink the better wine of his goodness. He was the perfect bridegroom, steadfast in his faithfulness towards us before we had even heard his name. I mentioned earlier that the Bible ends with a wedding, it actually starts with one too. The very first bride, Eve, was formed from the rib of the very first bridegroom, Adam. Was formed, she was formed from his side while he slept. Christ's bride, the new and better Eve, the church, was formed from the blood and water of Christ's side while he slept the much deeper sleep of death. For the church is formed through the blood of communion and the water of baptism. Through his death, he has created a new humanity, a bride for himself. And it's like we can almost hear him repeat those words that Adam says in Genesis 2. This at last, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The bride that God had set his love on from before creation was finally here. And Jesus now ascended to his father in heaven, says, I'm coming back for you. See, it's a little like if Israel was married, then the church is engaged. You know, there's actually a passage in, um, in John 14 where Jesus sort of proposes to his disciples uh, who are the people that will come to represent us, the church. Um, we'll miss it when we're reading John 14 if uh, we don't know how engagements worked at the time because they're a little bit different. So what would happen then would be that the whole family would be involved in an engagement, which immediately sounds pretty stressful to me, but um, a, a betrothal was a covenant between two families. So a woman would leave her father's house and join another man's house. Um, and that's not just the groom's house, that's the groom's father's house. So she would go and kind of live um, with her father-in-law in his house. 
when the groom and the bride become betrothed, the man would go to his father's house and add a room to his father's house. And he would prepare the room where he and his new bride were going to live. Can I wonder if that caused some problems sometimes? Like, why have you put the room right next to your parents' room? But um, uh, with that concept, not that specific concept, but the engagement thing <laughs> um, in mind, um, have a look at John 14. Um, it's, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he uses this exact engagement language. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is betrothal language. Here, Jesus, the bridegroom, is promising himself in marriage to his people. He's getting engaged. He says, I'm going for a short time, but I'm coming back to you to marry you and to bring you home. So if we, the church, are engaged, waiting for Christ to come and take us home, what's happening in the meantime? Well, he is taking care of all the preparations for the marriage. Look at this in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and be without blemish. Notice, none of this is our work. He loved us. He gave himself for us. He cleanses us. It's even him who will present us to himself. <laughs> That's how much responsibility he's taking here. I also, I think it's really important to notice the order here. First, he loved us. Then he gave himself for us. And what that achieved for us was our cleansing. Do you find yourself trying to make yourself clean before coming to Jesus? Maybe you're interested in who Jesus might be, but you think, oh, maybe I'll kind of sort myself out, clean myself up, and then I'll come to him. That's actually never the way that it works. Come to Jesus, and he will make you clean. We didn't make him love us because we were beautiful. We are made beautiful because he loved us. Let us keep coming to Jesus. He will do it all. Now, it's a precious truth that God loves each and every one of us as an individual. He gave himself for you. He knows your name. He knows each hair on your head. He knows a word spoken before it's even on your lips. That is true. And Jesus has but one love, his bride, the church. We are also each a bit like a kind of single thread, like a single piece of thread. And God has woven each of us together into a glorious tapestry called the church. 
So when we gather, like um, we are here in this room, or um, when um, life becomes a bit more normal, when we'll all be able to gather again together, we won't simply come as lots of individuals having our own personal experience of God. We come as one new people because we are the new Israel. He is making us day by day the people that Israel should have been, a devoted bride, captivated by him alone. It's as we gather to worship together, it's as we give ourselves to one another as the church, it's as we live and serve as a body that Christ has a glimpse of the wedding that is coming and he's like, yes, this is what I died for. He is preparing us for that day, even as we meet, as we worship. He is preparing us to be with him forever as a people. And I think, doesn't that make it easier to get out of bed on Sunday for church or to log on to Zoom for home group on a Thursday? Not for long. Hallelujah. Or to invite people who are new round to our gardens to know that the church isn't a human idea. She's God's idea. This is God's plan. We are God's treasured people. And when we see the fierce love with which Christ loves his bride, it helps us to love her too. Because don't we want to be moved by the things that move Christ? Don't our affections, don't we want them to be aligned to the affections of Christ? Christ loves his church when we know that it was to win the church that Christ endured the cross, laying down his life for her, it helps us to be sacrificial in the way we love the church, in the way we give ourselves to the church. This is actually a unique moment for us as Grace Church because we don't just have to go back to the way things were before, to our old church routines, our serving roles, our habits. Everything has been like shaken at the foundations. And now we get to decide the role that church will play in the coming months and years of our lives. And we get to order our lives around the things that Christ loves. Here are some just ideas. I hope it's okay if I get a bit practical. Just things that um, this could look like for you to love the church like Christ loves the church. First thing is to commit. So if maybe you're currently kind of between churches, maybe um, you've been on the edge or you're just looking in, commit to one church and be all in. It's about where to live, where we are going to have a job, the other things in our lives that we're going to commit to. Let's not let church be an afterthought. Let's make our decisions with church in mind. The second thing is um, to serve. There soon will be loads of opportunities, again, to join teams and serve in our kids' work and welcome people on a Sunday and um, do loads of hidden mundane things that no one will see. But I don't just mean serve on uh, church teams. Let's live to serve one another the way that Christ showed us how to serve one another. Let's take every opportunity to encourage, to make hospitality a sustainable rhythm in our lives, to bless our home group leaders, to babysit, to join meal rotors, to disciple, to visit those who are sick. Or maybe 
most, most importantly, to pray. I'm so challenged by how powerfully and how often we see Paul pray for the churches that he's writing to. Maybe if you don't often pray for the church, why not ask that God would grow us in our love for one another, in our wisdom, in our knowledge of his will, in our treasuring of the gospel? I think we'll find that as we do, we become more and more aligned to Jesus's heart for his church. This is such an obvious thing to say in a way, but the reason Grace Church needs prayer is that we're not a perfect church. On earth, we won't find a perfect church. And that means that church is not always easy. Engagement, betrothal, is a time of waiting, and there is pain in the waiting. As he changes us day by day, there are sharp edges <laughs> that we rub up against in church. We can be misunderstood. Generally, it's not really a question of if we will experience pain in the church, but when. <laughs> but I encourage you, even if church feels hard at the moment, that we are heading towards a wedding worth waiting for. A marriage worth waiting for. It will be the marriage that every good earthly marriage is a pale shadow of. It's the story that every happy ending on earth is a faint whisper of. It's the future that every moment of joy on earth is pointing towards. Us being with our bridegroom will be the culmination of all history, the culmination of all our longings. It's impossible to express the joy that we will know on that day. And here is, I think, one of the most glorious mysteries I've ever heard. When we get to that great day, we know that it will thrill our hearts. We know that we will experience overwhelming joy, but do you know it will thrill God's heart too? Can you believe it? We, us, thrill the very heart of the eternal God. Why? Because he has chosen to set his affection on us. He's waiting for us. Christ has eager anticipation in his heart. We were the joy set before him when he went to that cross. And he is coming for us to bring us to a great wedding feast and onto a marriage of complete joy, complete delight forevermore. I'd love us to, um, to pray and worship in um, response to Jesus' great love for us. Um, I wonder if Hannah, I could invite you up. Maybe if um, you're able, you're comfortable, um, you could stand where you are, or stand at home. <laughs> um, we're going to worship in just a second um, and just lift our eyes to Jesus, our great bridegroom. Um, but before that, I just wondered if at the beginning of this preach series, um, as we spend a few weeks thinking about 
who the church is, who we are, what Christ has done in forming us, and that we could just pray, that we could just bring this series before him and ask that he really would change us, that he really would capture us, that he really would set our hearts on what he has set his heart on. So I'm just going to pray. Why don't you join with me, Jesus? We ask that we would be captivated by the vision of the church. Lord, I ask that we would be moved and thrilled by your church, Jesus, that we would know again what it is you've done in making us a people when we were not a people. Lord, the miracle that it is that we're the church, Lord, we thank you that we're not trying to come up with a new scheme This was your plan, Jesus. This was your plan all along. God, I ask, would you change our hearts? Would you heal us, Jesus, where it's been so hard, where church has felt so costly, so painful, Jesus? Would you come and heal our hearts again? You soften our hearts again towards your church, Jesus. Would you lead us as a people? You are our bridegroom. You are our king, Jesus. Hmm. Let's lift our eyes in worship to him now. Thanks, Han.